Hephaestus was the Greek god of technology. And while Zeus, Apollo, Athena, Neptune, and the others were unspeakably beautiful and strong, Hephaestus tells us in Homer's Iliad that my own brazen-faced mother wanted to hide me for being lame. This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Last week, Wyoming Catholic College held our annual Adult Learning Week, the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought here in Lander. The topic was the ancient and modern challenges of technology. Dr. Glenn Arbery, the college president, opened up the week with these words about Hephaestus and Techne from chapter 18 of the Iliad. Before I get started, does everybody have their text? I hope, because I am gonna be looking at, um, digging into the Iliad a little bit. I hope this will stay put. Um, but first, uh, I wanna add my welcome to Jim's, and I want to begin with a few knee-jerk reactions to artificial intelligence, if that's okay with you. <clears throat> um, this is going to be a very interesting week, but one thing um, I think that is very interesting is that since we started talking about doing technology as our topic, I think this was this was last fall or you know late in the summer. Um, a lot has happened. For example, uh, last fall, I think um, maybe as we got toward the end of the year, chat GPT emerged, you know, this, this phenomenon um, that I think even at this time last year, we couldn't quite have conceived of. Has anybody tried it? Have you gotten on there to fiddle with it? We have one, okay. Um, every once in a while, I decide I'm going to get on there and see, you know, whether it can actually do things better and faster uh, than human beings could. So earlier this afternoon, I got on the ChatGPT screen and asked it to write a Petrarchan sonnet in which the poet complains that his beloved's untimely death is like her betrayal of him with another man. <laughs> I thought that ought to stump it, you know. Um, not only did it write a sonnet, it wrote two sonnets. It wrote them faster than I could possibly have read them. I want to say both of these sonnets appeared on the screen within five seconds. The first sonnet was about the complaint. The second one went beyond what I'd asked. It was about the poets coming to terms with the death of his beloved. These are pretty bad sonnets. I want to I stress this. Um, but they follow the rules, more or less. You know, 14 lines, you know, 10 syllables per line, more or less. Uh, there were Shakespearean sonnets rather than Petrarchan sonnets, so it messed up on that. This, this scansion is a little erratic, but I promise you that any student assigned this task would have labored over it, you know, probably for days. And most of the students, in my experience, would not have done any better than these things that were just turned up by this chat GPT. So what can this mean? <clears throat> 
Uh, GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. So it draws upon these massive amounts of data. Here's what it says about itself, if you ask it, is ChatGPT intelligent? It's important to note that GPT is not capable of true understanding or consciousness, and its responses are generated based on statistical patterns learned from large data sets. While the responses may seem intelligent, they are not generated by a conscious being and do not reflect true intelligence. Okay, <laughs> that's even more problematic, isn't it? Because we're not dealing with intelligent agents, but simply with mechanisms that draw upon immense amounts of data to generate intelligible sentences and write sonnets maybe better than our students can. When I asked it about Hephaestus and technology, it outlined a solid talk. So I'm gonna give, I mean, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're welcome to go get that one, all right. Um, it was factually wrong in a few places, but it was okay, you know, it was, it was pretty good. Still, you see what I mean? GPT has already become a cataclysmic issue in education. You'll see articles about it all the time. Um, what happens to the student essay? You know, if you can type in a prompt and the thing comes up with a complete paper, seriously within a few seconds, um, what's, what's gonna be the result of that? Everybody's writing about anti-GPT plagiarism software, or maybe it's GPT writing the articles about it. Don't know, right? But, uh, it's a deeper problem than cheating. And earlier this week, the heads of several large companies that actually spend most of their time and money developing artificial intelligence <coughs> issued a short statement. Anybody see this this past week? Yeah, which was then signed by more than 350 other innovators in the field. And this is the statement. One sentence. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. That's the whole statement, um, a little chilling. In other words, AI is potentially dangerous on a scale such that the question is how to mitigate the risk of extinction of the human race from artificial intelligence. People warning us work with Microsoft, Google, and similar companies. They're asking how we keep ourselves or how we keep them from making the move that will allow AI to take over and channel against us all the possible tools that will lead to the overthrow of mankind as such. The possibilities are pretty numerous if you let your imagination roam a bit, right? <laughs> what this might look like, how, how it might happen. Um, but what we find ourselves doing now is more or less what we did, as I know a lot of you remember, at the beginning of the atomic age, when we're looking not with the boundless expectation of early modernity, as we'll see on Tuesday, but with this sudden renewed caution, wondering what we might do to release powers that can easily exceed 
our own capacities of intelligence. So why are we starting, if we're thinking about these matters, with the Greeks and the Bible? Story of Noah is about the near extinction of mankind as such. Tomorrow, when we look at Prometheus Bound, we'll see that the threat of the overthrow of the gods is one of the central stories in the Greek myths. Zeus has overthrown his father, Kronos, just as Kronos has overthrown his father, Uranus. And the threat posed for Zeus is how to prevent him from making the move that will introduce an entirely new order and reconfigure the cosmos that gods and men inhabit. In other words, this whole problem of possibly cataclysmic change is, is itself very old, as Jim was suggesting. One question we're going to want to ask is why this play, Prometheus Bound, about potential cosmic overthrow is also about the gift of technology. What's the connection there? What are we looking at when we think about, you know, possibly Zeus being overthrown and the gift of technology to man, uh, symbolized by fire, right? What is it that, that this connection suggests? Now, it might seem to you that the Iliad is a long way from these kinds of considerations. But in fact, the figure of Achilles, who's the central character of the Iliad, is also central to this concern with cosmic overthrow and to the gift of divine art or techne. It's a word we're going to be coming back to a lot this week. Techne in Greek means art. It also means craft. It's obviously the root you know, of the word technology. So what are, what are we to think about techne as we see it developing in these, uh, these early Greek works that we're considering. So let me explain what I'm talking about with the Iliad first. <clears throat> um, when, you, when you read Prometheus Bound, you find that, Jenny's going to talk about this tomorrow morning, but the, the secret that Prometheus is withholding from Zeus and that leads to all his torture is what the marriage is that will lead to the overthrow of Zeus. The son from this marriage will be a god who is greater than Zeus, who will have a more powerful weapon, and he'll overthrow the whole Olympian order. The answer to this question is assumed by the Iliad. The goddess who would have married Zeus and led to this overthrow is Thetis, whom you see in Book 18. Um, this is a spoiler for sure, right? But <clears throat> she's the one who has the destiny to bear the son greater than her father greater than his father. So if Thetis were to marry Zeus or Poseidon or one of the other major Olympian gods, then we're talking about you know, a challenger to the whole Olympian order. So what's the solution? <clears throat> um, Pindar has one of, his, one of his odes in which he makes this very explicit. The goddess Themis proposes to the uh, gods who are vying for Thetis, who must be, you know, I mean, she's a kind of Helen figure among the gods, if you see what I mean. To, to, to go with Thetis is to bring destruction upon everything. So um, she must be, you know, extraordinarily lovely. When you, when you see her in the poem and you think about uh, the divine vying for her, 
So what's the solution? Well, marry Thetis to a mortal and avert the threat to the Olympian order. So what if a mortal is greater than his father, right? So there's plenty of evidence in the Iliad that Achilles knows the story about his own conception. In other words, he's born mortal. He's fated to a single short life and deprived of the greatest of all destinies, which is to be the God who overthrows Zeus himself. Okay. At the beginning of the Iliad, the king over the Achaeans, Agamemnon, terribly insults Achilles, tells him he's worthless. He's, you know, always getting angry that he's, you know, he doesn't care at all about him. Uh, he can leave the army if he wants to. He takes away Achilles' war prize because Agamemnon has had to give up his own war prize in order to appease the god Apollo. So just to think about the situation, not only has Achilles been de deprived of the greatest possible glory, being the, the supreme god, but he's even been denied ordinary honor among mortals. He curses Agamemnon, he withdraws from the fighting, and at the same time, he calls in the debt of Zeus to him and to his mother. So how does he do this? He sends his mother to ask Zeus to show how important he is, how significant he is in the army and you know, among the men he's fighting with. It's, you know, it's not that savory a way to do it, but he asks that the Achaeans lose while he himself is absent from the fighting. In other words, this is your dream, right? All right, I'm leaving now. You guys, good luck. And of course, everything goes on just as well as ever, right? Not with Achilles, right? He says this, and everything immediately collapses, right? The first two-thirds of the poem are about how the Achaeans lose and lose badly. After two days of fighting without him, they're already pressed back against their own ships. For the first time in the war, they built a wall around the ships. Didn't need one before. Um, they offer him, after these two days, great prizes if he'll return and fight for the Achaeans. But he tells them that he won't, that he's you know, still considering it. Maybe he will. He's got these two destinies. One is that he has a long life without particular honor, or the other is that he has everlasting glory. If he has the everlasting glory, that comes with a, with a short life. And he seems, and, and when they come to speak to him, to be deciding on the long life. You know, uh, he's been dishonored. Why should he fight for these people? So in the next day of fighting, the ships themselves are threatened. The Trojans, led by Hector, break through the wall. They have fire with them. They're setting fire to the first ship. And Achilles agrees to let his friend Patroclus wear his own armor and go into the fighting. And he drives away the Trojans and himself gets carried away. Goes too far. God Apollo strikes him, knocks all the armor from him, and then Hector kills him. And in Book 17, just before what you have in the reading for today, um, the Achaeans are fighting over the body. Hector is about to take it away and behead it, you know, mutilate it. Um, 
And so you know, the fight over the body of Patroclus is what leads directly into what we have in Book 18. So let me, let me summarize this quickly and, and get to, to the question about Hephaestus. Um, Antilochus, who's a son of Nestor, comes in at the beginning of Book 18 to give Achilles the news that Patroclus has died. Achilles is so distraught. I mean, he's heard a, 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 a kind of prophecy to this effect before, but he hasn't remembered it, of course, until right now after it's too late. Um, he cries out. Uh, you know, Antilochus is actually holding his hand so he won't cut his own throat. Uh, Achilles cries out, and his mother Thetis, who is one of the Nereids, one of the daughters of the sea, hears him down in the depths of the ocean. And you get this beautiful recitation of the names of those other goddesses who are down there. And this, sen this sense that this is, this is something more than just, you know, the ordinary outcry uh, of emotion when, when something happens. It's got, you know, it's got a kind of depth to it, you know, the depth of the sea. And Thetis cries out to her sisters and then, you know, tells them, about the birth of Achilles. It's not about Patroclus. They're not mourning Patroclus. They're mourning Achilles himself. She comes up out of the sea and appears to him and asks him, you know, why has he why has he cried out like this? She already knows. But you know, it's almost like a ritual recitation of of what um, <coughs> what has happened. Let's look at this if you have your, your text. It's on page 377, and we're at about line 80, 85 in the poem. When she comes up, uh, he tells her, yes, you know, the Olympian Zeus brought all the things to accomplishment that he said he was going to do. But, you know, what, what is the pleasure of it to me since I've lost Patroclus? And I'm picking it up about line 82. And Hector, who killed him, has stripped away that gigantic armor, a wonder to look on and splendid, which the gods gave Peleus, a glorious present. On that day, they drove you to the marriage bed of a mortal. You see, I mean, here, here in late in the poem, we're getting kind of this explicit kind of underlining of, of what Thetis was forced to do. She had to marry a mortal. And the armor that he just lost was given to his father on the very day of, of the wedding. And so, you know, what's been taken away from, from Patroclus and from Achilles is a kind of sign of that, of that marriage itself, right? The mortal marrying the goddess and engendering Achilles. So um, Achilles sort of mourns his mother and the grieving that she's going to have to undergo because she's immortal, he's mortal, and so her loss will be, um, you know, uh, one that, that goes on and on. It's not limited by our own mortality, but, you know, a grief that is perpetually renewed. Um, and Thetis tells him if he goes to avenge the death of Patroclus, that his own death is going to follow very soon. So what we see in the next few lines of the poem is Achilles accepting his dumb death. 
Okay, I accept my death whenever it will come. And this seems almost uh, necessary in this great scheme of things, that it can't happen that Achilles dies until Achilles himself accepts his death and makes a, a kind of affirmation of, of this short life that he's been given. Okay, the rest of book 18, Hector foolishly uh, encourages the rest of the Trojans to stay out in the plain that night, which makes them <laughs> very easy for Achilles to get at the next day, as Polydamas, one of you know, the, the Trojans, uh, emphasizes pretty strongly. Um, and then the rest of the book is Thetis going up to Hephaestus in, in his house on Olympus. So what's book 18 about? I want to emphasize a word that Hephaestus uses when he hears that, that um, Thetis has come up into his house. And it's zoagria, or recompense. It, it means, uh, in Greek, the reward for a life saved. So if you saved someone's life, then the reward that you were given for saving their life would be this zoagria. You see what I'm saying? It's a, it's a kind of um, reward or recompense, some kind of prize uh, given to the person who saved your life. Now, Hephaestus says that he has to do this for Thetis because she and, and Eurynome, these two goddesses of the sea, took him when he was thrown out of Olympus and kept him for nine years. And you get those wonderful <laughs> images of, of Hephaestus all those years making these intricate little things, pins that bend back, um, clasps, uh, all kinds of ornaments, you know, as though he's learning the craft of, of his uh, art, his techne, while he's there in, in this nine-year hiatus when nobody else among the gods knows where he is. So he thinks of this time as needing recompense for Thetis. So why was he thrown out of heaven? Um, he's born club-footed. He he's lame in both feet. And whenever you see him in the Iliad or the Odyssey, you know, he's limping. There's a scene early in the Iliad where he's limping around serving uh, drinks to, to all the other gods, and they're, they're all laughing at him. So you think about the difference between Hephaestus as a, as a god, as a figure, and all these, these other gods who have this great beauty in themselves. The, the French scholar Jean-Pierre Vernant writes that the gods have a super body. Just what you want, right? <laughs> a body made entirely and forever of beauty and glory. It's overwhelming. You can't look at it directly with most of the gods. And Hephaestus among this set of the gods is the club-footed one, the, the limping one. Um, Thetis is described in book 18 as silver-footed. Iris is swift-wind-footed. Even mortal Achilles is um, swift-footed or savior-footed. He's so fast he can save other people in battle. But Hephaestus is the god of the dragging footsteps. His own mother throws him away when she sees him. So what is Hephaestus here? What are we looking at? 
when we look at Achilles and Hephaestus kind of juxtaposed as they are here in Book 18. Hephaestus is the ugly god who makes beautiful things. Um, how are we to understand those beautiful things? Are they, are they somehow a compensation for what he lacks in his own person? In other words, you look at the, the beautiful things he makes, uh, they, they give you a sense of what? His, his own inner beauty? I don't know. But you, know, you, you remember the, the house of Hephaestus when you enter into it. Um, he's got tripods. What do you remember about the tripods? He's still putting the ears on them, but otherwise, they just go, you know, they go on their own. They have motion in themselves, right? Um, they show up and, oh, there you are, before you need it, right? There's the tripod. Robots? These got these beautiful kind of girl robots who um, have intelligence within them. And they, they do things, you know, they, but, you know, think of, you know, the, the house of Hephaestus is, you know, beautifully designed. It's full of all these things that he's made. He's married in the Iliad to Charis, right? In the, in the Odyssey, he's married to, to Aphrodite. Charis means grace. It's the root of the word charity, you know, it's. It's about this kind of um, lovely uh, demeanor. And somehow Charis is here associated with Hephaestus instead of him being the butt of all the jokes as he is in the Odyssey. But why Hephaestus in the story of Achilles? He's using his techne, his art, as a reward for saving his life, right? This is, I mean, this is what he's agreed to do for Thetis. And in doing so, I suggest that he's standing in for Zeus himself, who is crafting the whole action. Zeus owes Thetis recompense. See what I'm saying? Thetis was forced to marry the mortal. She was deprived of, of the kind of honor and glory that you know, a marriage among the gods would, would have brought her. And instead, this humiliating marriage to a mortal. So Zeus owes Thetis recompense, or Zoagria. She saved his life. Are you with me? He married her to a mortal so that Thetis, by doing that, saved Zeus, right? Saved the Olympian order. So there's, there's a kind of debt incurred here. And the recompense for that debt I think we're seeing symbolized in what in what Hephaestus is doing for Achilles. Are you with me? So Achilles needs armor. He can't go into fight into the fighting without armor. Thetis goes to Hephaestus, asks him for this armor, and Hephaestus willingly grants it because he feels this need to recompense her for what she did for him. I'm suggesting that this is a kind of symbolic way to get at what Zeus is also doing, right, in the, in the whole of the poem. And that what we're looking at with Hephaestus is a kind of, um, you know, in small, a way of, of, of getting at that debt that Zeus owes. So in other words, what Hephaestus forges 
is the symbol for this everlasting glory that, that Zeus is crafting for, for Achilles because of the lives that he saved of, of the Olympian gods. Is this still making sense? I mean, tell me if it's not. So good, okay, all right. Now, note that Thetis reminds Hephaestus of her own deprivation. So I'm seeing technology in terms of a kind of recompense or compensation for something you've been deprived of. Look on page 386, if you would, down at the bottom of the page. 386. <clears throat> this is starting about line 424. So Hephaestus catches Thetis by the hand. Why is it, Thetis of the light robes? You have come to our house now. We honor you and love you, but you have not come much before this. Speak forth what is in your mind. My heart is urgent to do it if I can, and if it is a thing that can be accomplished. Then in turn, Thetis answered him, letting the tears fall. Hephaestus, is there among all the goddesses on Olympus one who in her heart has suffered so many grim sorrows as the grief Zeus, son of Kronos, has given me beyond others? Of all the other sisters of the sea, he gave me to a mortal, to Peleus, Aeacus' son, and I had to endure mortal marriage, though much against my will. And now he, broken by old age, lies in his halls. And then she goes on to tell the whole story of Achilles. So her own deprivation, right, is, is profoundly felt here. But the greater deprivation falls on Achilles. And this armor only comes to him when he accepts that his own life cannot be saved, right? You know, this recompense means, you know, the reward for a life saved. His life in the very getting the armor is already, we've already understood cannot be saved. He's already accepted his death. So that everything that Hephaestus is making for him is ultimately futile in that it won't protect him from death. So what is it then, right? What is it then that we're looking at with him? I want to suggest that this art or techne is nevertheless recompense. It's what? It's recompense for the fact that Achilles is going to die. And it, it seems to be, and this is something I want to, I want to kind of uh, put up against what we're looking at in Prometheus Bound tomorrow, where the mortal race is, you know, initially considered absolutely worthless before the gifts of Prometheus. Um, in giving this kind of art, this kind of um, armor to Achilles, it seems as though Hephaestus and perhaps Zeus through Hephaestus is honoring mortality itself, that is the whole state of, of what human beings are, as um, you know, is kind of honoring them in terms of this sacrificial dimension, this mortal suffering and death as the price for the cosmos uh, not being overthrown. 
the whole life of Achilles as a mortal purchases the continuation of the Olympian order. And the visible recompense is crafting this superb work of art for Achilles to bear with him, uh, the armor itself, and ultimately the Iliad, uh, the Iliad itself, right, is the, the work that, that's crafted to, to guarantee and perpetuate the everlasting glory of Achilles and also to, to raise up um, mortality and the whole state of human beings along with it. You know, the whole last few pages of, of Book 18 are about the shield of Achilles. Um, what's on it? You know, what, what are we to understand by, by what's depicted on this shield? Uh, there is the whole cosmic order, you know, the sun, the moon, the oceans, and the tides. They're the two cities. They're all the, the uh, good things of, of human life. And it, it's all encapsulated. If you, if you think about the, the nature of what you're looking at on the shield, you can sort of see the guys coming up every time you finish plowing a row and giving you a flagon of wine. You see the dirt turning over. You know, you hear the music of the dances. You see, you know, it's, it's sort of an astonishing uh, piece of art. Um, in that, you know, Homer never describes it as simply depicting those things. It's almost as though they're actually happening on the shield. And occasionally he'll bring you back to, to what the, the, um, what the shield, uh, you know, what the artwork of art on the shield is actually depicting. So I think it's interesting to ask if this is kind of our image of technology, right? This is techne, this is art. This is the thing that's made and given to Achilles, who is this more or less uh, sacrificial figure who's keeping, you know, the whole of the Olympian order from being overthrown. What, what are we to understand by this shield? It has some gods depicted on it, I think, but only, only once, right? There, there are two of them who are helping out in the battle. Otherwise, it's a depiction of, of all these lovely things, right, in human life, such as a marriage, right, the marriage feast, and the, the, you know, the groom going by and the women standing in the doorways as, you know, as they watch the procession go by. I mean, there, there is a battle on there, right, and there are people being killed. So it, and then there, there's, a, there's a scene in the law court, you know, when somebody's been killed and they're arguing over the blood price and things like that. So it's, so, uh, on the shield, which is, you know, whose function, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about it simply in terms of function, is to protect Achilles, right? It's, it's never going to fulfill that, that role. It, it won't protect Achilles ultimately from his death, right? But what's depicted on it, what he carries into battle, is somehow larger than even the... Uh, you know, the, the question of his own mortality in that regard. Um, so, you know, the, the earth being plowed, the, the vineyard heavy with clusters, right, and all the, all the people going in and out of the vineyard carrying the grapes, um, the herd of cattle, right, the lions pouncing on the cattle, 
the dogs trying to chase them away, the dancing floor, all these things. Um, what's yeah? What, why the why the idyllic image? Why why this is the great uh, work of art? You know, embedded in the Iliad. Uh, I'm, and I'm, I guess I'm asking us to think of this sort of as our our first image of technology. You know, this is this is the the work of techne. This is this is a kind of um, beautiful um, thing made by made by the god himself, whose whose art is is techne. I mean, yeah, the, the first time we see, you know, real evidence of what's going to become technology, it seems to be surrounded by this, by this kind of um, maternal, you know, desire to honor her son. And the, the, I mean, this is divine art, right? When, it, when it's brought back down into the human order and given to Achilles, in the beginning of book 19, everybody else kind of stands back in terror of it. But there's a character of, you know, the divinely made thing that, you know, that we see here uh, at this part of the Iliad in, in ways that I think are almost entirely uh, good. I mean, I don't, I don't see a, a danger here, you know, that, that's being, that's shining out. Christina? Right, and and he's being he's being given a kind of symbolic lordship over the whole human order, right? Which uh, he won't rule over, right? Literally as king, because the only way he gets that is by accepting his death. I think what we're what we're seeing is a kind of signaling of the end of the order of the gods, anyway. You know, in, in the sense that human beings kind of occupy the sacred space of the shield. Human beings are the subject matter of the, of the poem, you know? The gods are in it, but they begin to kind of recede, especially as, as the, this tragic figure of Achilles, you know, occupies the whole foreground of what we're looking at in the poem. I like to think about the, the Trojan War as the war that didn't happen on Olympus. You know, instead of Thetis marrying Zeus and the whole Olympian order being overthrown, there was a forbidden woman down here in the mortal order. Contention over her led to the Trojan War, which was the setting for the glory of Achilles, you know, which was a compensation for, for not being what he was, you know, had he been born the son of Zeus. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, it's a it's a kind of displacement, and displacements like that characterize a lot of what's going on here, including, I think, the displacement of Zeus's honoring of Achilles into what Hephaestus makes in the armor, right? It's a kind of a visible image, a positive act of vengeance against Zeus. Because, I mean, Hephaestus himself is a reject, right? He's the reject. He's the one thrown out of heaven because of his deformity. And, you know, he sees that he's a comic figure, you know. So there, there are ways of, of seeing that, I think, is um, very accurately the case. I mean, Hephaestus is your mechanic, you know. He's, he's the guy who's, who's dirty and, you know, you don't want to bring him home for dinner. 
But uh, maybe you did. But, but but you see what I mean? He's he's kind of um, Igor in the Frankenstein movie. <laughs> okay, I think um, I think we've we've made a start. Um, and maybe I, I was thinking, I was, I was telling Jenny earlier, I think it'd be interesting when we get into the Prometheus bound and look at all the gifts of Prometheus, who's hardly mentioned that I can remember in Homer. Remember where he comes up at all. Uh, it's Hephaestus, you know, who's the, the artisan, uh, the figure of Techne. Um, Prometheus in the, you know, in the myth that we'll see in Prometheus bound steals from Hephaestus who has still got a kind of generosity, you know, in him at the beginning of that play. But why, why the figure of Prometheus? You know, why do we also need Prometheus, right, to, to think about um, mankind and technology? So, you know, why does it uh, have to be theft? And I know, I know we'll pick up all these, these questions in the morning. Okay, great, thank you. This is the first podcast of the summer featuring faculty comments about the readings from the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought, and there will be links in the description of the podcast as to where you can get those readings. The program was, honestly, too good not to share, and perhaps it will give you a taste of this year's school, which will get you excited about signing up for the 2024 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.